Well, good morning. Let's try our Hebrew. Shalom. Ah, that is music to my ears. It is so good uh, to hear the language of heaven and uh, to be with you this morning as we gather at the Passover table. Now, I'm curious how many of you have been to a Passover table before? Okay, my guess is that for many of you, it wasn't so far away from the table. Uh, today, we have the opportunity to set the table up here on the stage. And if you would, in your hearts, pull up your seat close to this table, because my hope and my prayer for you is that your heart will engage with the story of our redemption. Friends, this table is a table that's really special to me. It's one that uh, I've been at many times uh, growing up uh, in my life. I would gather at my grandparents' home located at 3823 Jerome Street in Skokie, Illinois. Don't ask me how we got the sign. <laughs> But I always loved going into my grandparents' home for the Passover. I always knew it was going to be a very special night just based on how beautiful the table was set by my grandmother. And I could also uh, smell the, the scent of my people, matzo ball soup. If you've never had matzo ball soup, you're really missing out. Uh, but it was always a wonderful evening for us to gather at a table and to remember an epic event in the history of our people. God commanded us to remember every year the story of the Exodus. When we were slaves in Egypt and, and God heard our cry and raised up a deliverer, Moses, who would then confront Pharaoh and God would end up getting an amazing victory in bringing us from the bondage of slavery into the hope of freedom. And God told the people, don't forget that I did this for you. In fact, oftentimes throughout the, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, you'll notice that God mentions to the people of Israel, don't forget that I'm the God who delivered you from Egypt. And as a result, paraphrasing here for God, the least you can do is listen to me and walk in my ways. And so every year we would get together to remember that epic moment in our history now, you need to know for me that when I gather at this table today, I don't just look back to what happened some 3,500 years ago, but I now also look back to another exodus that occurred some 2,000 years ago. You see, Jesus was at a Passover table with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And he said to his disciples that night, what has been written about me, what's been promised about me is coming to its fulfillment. You see, friends, a lot had been written about the coming Messiah. And Jesus was making it very clear to his disciples that night, as he makes it clear to us today, I am the one who was promised. I am your deliverer. I am the one who's going to bring you out of the bondage of the slavery of sin into the hope of eternal life. I am your deliverer, Jesus is saying. And so for us today, as we gather at this table, may your hearts engage with the reality of what has been accomplished for you through the blood of the Lamb. Now, you need to know every Jewish family uses what's called a Haggadah or Haggadah 
uh, depending upon how you want to use your Hebrew to help tell the story of the Exodus. Uh, the version that we used of the Haggadah in my uh, family uh, was uh, this one here. This is an actual copy, uh, which is published, Compliments of the Coffees of Maxwell House. Okay, just so you know, this is the caffeinated version of the Haggadah. It moves a little bit quicker than some of uh, the others. Uh, but we're not going to use uh, this one today. We're going to use an even more abbreviated one, if you will, that uh, I've created for you that you received when you walked in this morning. It's called the Passover Experience, and it goes through the same exact order that any Passover would go through as a family is gathered in their home. I've taken out a couple of things just for the sake of time, uh, but we're going to go through this same order and learn about what the various symbols and, and rituals and traditions that are a part of the Passover and how it helps us to remember what God did 3,500 years ago, but again, how it also foreshadows what Jesus did. Uh, Paul, the, the apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, that all of the festivals we're a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in the Messiah, is found in Christ. And so we're going to see here how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. Now, uh, listen, as we jump into Luke's gospel, uh, that helps to tell the story of Jesus observing the Passover with his disciples from Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the goodman of the house, the master saith unto thee, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, you may have picked up in this passage an emphasis on getting ready for the Passover. You need to know that there are a lot of preparations that are involved when it comes to the observance of the Passover. One of the key instructions that God gave to the people of Israel is that he wanted them to remove all leaven, anything containing yeast, from the dwelling in which they would observe the Passover. In fact, they were commanded to not eat of anything containing leaven for this eight-day celebration that we refer to as Passover, which is actually two festivals, Passover beginning on night one, then the very next night at sundown begins the festival of unleavened bread. And even in the New Testament scriptures, these two festivals combined are often just referred to as the Passover. So you've got eight days of no eating of leaven. Now, uh, what would typically happen in a religious Jewish home is you would have your mother who would probably spend a few weeks doing some house cleaning to get all the leaven out of the house. And so she would need to go to the pantry, of course, too, and she would need to grab the weedy cereal and the Wonder Bread 
and the Hostess Twinkies, okay? If you're a big Hostess Twinkies fan, this is probably going to be a tough eight-day celebration for you, but probably a good idea to let that go for a little bit more than just eight days. Now, uh, because they're not to possess the leaven, they'll take it next door to that nice Gentile family, uh, take it to the O'Briens, okay? The, let the O'Briens have it uh, for the eight days. Uh, and because they're not to possess the leaven, what they'll often do is they'll sell it to their Gentile neighbor for a dollar, and then after Passover is done, buy it back for a dollar. It's kind of a way of circumventing uh, rabbinical law, but I guess it works. Now, uh, because she's done most of the house cleaning, she's going to leave one last job for dad. And she's going to put some crumbs on a windowsill. And she's going to hand him a couple of clean utensils to clean out the crumbs from the windowsill. And these are the utensils that she gives him. A wooden spoon and a feather. These are what he has to use to clean the crumbs out of the windowsill. Now, the best explanation for why a wooden spoon and a feather uh, comes from a movie that I saw some years ago, and I hope you saw it as well. And the explanation for why we use a wooden spoon and a feather is very simple. Tradition. Tradition. Okay, probably not the best Tevya you've ever seen from Fiddler on the Roof. I get it. I get it. Um, but, you know, some of the things that uh, we've been doing uh, in the Jewish faith, uh, don't ask any questions, just keep on doing it. So not that you could relate to that in any way here. <laughs> now, uh, he'll take the wooden spoon and the feather, and he'll carefully brush those crumbs onto the wooden spoon. And then he'll wrap these into a white linen napkin and then go to the local synagogue where the other fathers have gathered to complain about why they couldn't use their shop vacs to clean out the windowsill. No, what they'll do is they'll throw this into a bonfire to burn all the leaven away. Then they'll come back to their homes and declare that their homes are ceremonially cleansed and ready for the Passover meal. Now, when we learn of instructions like this that God gave to the people of Israel, we really should ask ourselves, okay, God, what's up with that? Is there a deeper spiritual truth that you want us to understand about who you are or maybe about who we are? And I think that's very much the case here when it comes to this instruction about removing physical leaven from our physical homes. You might recall that in Scripture, Oftentimes, leaven or yeast is often used as a symbol for sin, meaning wherever it's mentioned, it's often referring to sin in our lives. Do you remember when Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? And then he went on to explain that the leaven represented the Pharisees' pride, the sin of making it all about yourself. In fact, Paul used leaven as a symbol for sin as well when he wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, it's there in your Haggadah from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 or 8. He wrote them, your glorying, your, your glorifying of yourself is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Messiah, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So friends, what I think God was ultimately getting at is although he wanted them to remove physical leaven from their physical homes, the home that he was most concerned about is which home? It's the home of our hearts, isn't it? It's this body, it's this dwelling place that he once cleansed. 
And and what the scriptures make very, very clear is that it's only Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has the ability to enter into our homes, to enter into our hearts, to do the cleaning, to do the cleansing that only he is capable of doing. So friends, as we're gathered at this table today, may you consider what work is God doing in you? What cleansing is God doing in your life? God wants you to be clean. He wants you to be reconciled to him. And he makes it very clear that that can only happen through his son. Now, after the home has been prepared for the Passover, uh, we can officially begin with what we call the Barak Honor, the lighting of the festival candles. Uh, I'm going to ask Patrice, I spoke to her uh, ahead of time, to have her come up and light the candles for us this morning. Just so you know, it's always a woman who has the privilege of lighting the festival candles. Men don't get to do this. Uh, it's always always a woman. Come on, Patrice. Uh, just so you know, Patrice's uh, mother, this is a tablecloth that uh, Patrice's uh, mother had purchased. Uh, kind of hard to see, but there's a Star of David on there, and there's a Torah scroll and a, and a uh, menorah, Hanukkah uh, menorah. Uh, her, that's okay. You could dump the just matches all over. No big deal. All you need is one, though, so hopefully. <laughs> that's Okay. Um, so go ahead, light those candles. Don't forget to say the Hebrew blessing, though, beforehand. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just say yada, 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 amen. Yeah, it worked on Seinfeld, so that can, that can work here. So anyway, thank you so much, Patrice. So why is it a woman? Why don't men get to do this? Well, apparently there was a rabbi some years ago that said that men are not allowed to play with matches during Jewish holidays. Although if he just saw Patrice spill all the matches all over, I'm sure he would have added women as well. No, that's not the real reason. The real reason is because the rabbis teach that it will be from the womb of a woman that the light of the world will come forth. Of course, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that it was from the womb of Mary or Miriam, as she would have been known some 2,000 years ago, that Yeshua, Jesus, the salvation of God came to be the light of the world. Uh, I love how in Jewish teaching, one of the reasons why two candles are lit is because one candle is to represent God's illumination in the world. And the other candle is to represent how we are to bring God's illumination into the world. Of course, this reminds me of what Jesus said of himself. I am the light of the world. And then he said of his followers, you are the light of the world. So consider this morning as you reflect upon the candles here. How is God revealing more of who he is to you? And and how are you revealing who God is? To this world. Well, after the candles have been lit, we can really kind of officially dive in to the Passover Seder uh, when we come to what's known as the four cups. Uh, here on the table, I have a very traditional uh, Seder cup. It's the cup that keeps the order of the Passover. Uh, it gets four names from four I will promises that God made to the Israelites when they were slaves 
in Egypt. And just so you know, the word uh, Seder means order, and it's the cup that keeps the order. Now, uh, you received some boxes uh, when you walked in that have several elements in them. Go ahead and open up those boxes. Uh, we're going to do our best today to bring the elements of the Seder right to you, right where you're at in your seat. Now, the best way that we could do that when it came to the Seder cup uh, is to give you a sacred Seder juice pouch. Okay? So find your, your Seder juice pouch and go ahead, take the straw off, and then, you know, very, you know, just like you were back in, in grade school, you take that straw and you, you stab it in the right place, uh, and hopefully you then don't squirt it all over yourself or all over your neighbor. Um, now, traditionally, of course, uh, we might have a cup like this one uh, or other glasses, whatever. It's not so important what the cup looks like. It's more important what it represents. Now, uh, you're probably also realizing that Jesus, when he observed the Passover, we don't read about four cups during his Seder. Now, many historians, however, believe that uh, there were four cups during the Seder at his time. It's debated, um, but some think that he would have been aware of the various cups that were a part of the Passover meal. Now, in the Gospels, it's one cup in particular uh, that gets the attention, and we'll get to that cup in just a, a few moments. But it is interesting that in Luke's Gospel, we read about a cup that Jesus takes before the meal and one that he takes after the meal. For our purposes today, we're going to connect the cup before the meal that Jesus took and connect that to the first cup of the Passover, which is known as the cup of sanctification or the cup of blessing, which is used to set this meal, to set this time apart from any other that we would partake of during the year. So listen as I dive back into Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14. And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Hear that. Jesus was eager to be at the Passover table with his disciples that night. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and he gave thanks. And the Hebrew blessing that is said over the cup today is the same one that would have been said some 2,000 years ago. So you can imagine Jesus at this point praying, Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. After giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And in effect, what Jesus is saying here is, you have the guarantee that I will drink of this cup again. You have the guarantee that I will complete the work that I have started. So take this and drink in remembrance of the coming kingdom. Now, after we've taken of the first cup or first sip of your juice pouch, uh, we then come to what's called the urkats. 
I know that might sound like a bad Jewish cold, but it's not. Uh, Erkatz just simply means the washing of hands. What the leader of the Seder will do is he'll take a vessel of sorts like this that has water in it, and he'll pour the water over his hands to signify that he has ceremonially cleansed his hands for the Passover meal. Now, in a more religious Jewish home, they'll have a pitcher of water in a bowl, and they'll pass it around the table and pour the water over the hands of the person sitting next to you. And it's a way to demonstrate that we've gathered at the table in a spirit of humility and service. Now, the custom some 2,000 years ago would have been for the servant of the gathering to not only wash the hands of the master, of the one who'd be leading the Seder, but to wash his feet as well. Well, on that Passover night some 2,000 years ago, apparently Jesus' disciples, his servants, missed their cue. And he then proceeded to do something that as far as we're aware, no rabbi of his day would ever do. He turns the tables. He takes off his outer garment and sets it off to the side. His garment represented his authority. And then he takes a basin of water and a towel and he goes down to the dirty, stinky feet of his disciples to wash them. And you remember Peter's response to this. Peter was like, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this to me. And Jesus made it very clear to Peter, Peter, if I can't do this for you, then you can have no part in me. And Jesus was making it very clear, friends, that it's only through him that cleansing can be provided. He also was making it very clear to his disciples that night, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be the least. Be a servant. Jesus had said in his ministry, I have come as one who serves and to give his life as a ransom for many. So friends, when I come to this point in the Seder every year when I'm sitting with my family in my home as we'll do uh, this coming Wednesday, it's always an opportunity for me to do a bit of a heart check to, to just kind of check in with God on how I'm doing with the ministry of the towel how I'm doing with what God has called me to do, uh, to serve and and to love those who are gathered at my table, to, to serve and to love those who are gathered beyond my table. And so friends, as you're at this table today, may you consider how are you doing with the ministry of the towel? How are you doing with, uh, using your, your time and and your talents and, and your treasures to serve those in your life. Well, after we've done the urkats, the washing of the hands, uh, we then come to what's called the carpus and salt water. Now, I know that might sound like a Jewish trash fish that swims in the sea, but it's not. Carpus is the Hebrew word for greens. Uh, what we use for greens is Parsley. Now, if you've seen in your box, you have a little cup that has a sprig of parsley in it that's been pre-dipped into salt water. This is an element that's been added by the rabbis to remind us of of a few things related to the Passover. Go ahead. You can get your bite-sized piece of parsley, your, your carpus. The parsley represents the green of springtime, which is when Passover is observed. It also represents new life or new beginnings, and it's dipped into salt water, which represents the saltiness of the Red Sea, as well as the tears that were shed when the Israelites were slaves 
in Egypt. Now, the rabbis teach that when you observe the Passover, that you should see yourself in the story as if you were actually there some 3,500 years ago when God parted the Red Sea for us. This also then becomes, I think, a great opportunity for us to consider just in our lives today. uh, Where is it that God has shown up for us to part a Red Sea in our lives? Where in the midst of our trials and our tribulations, in the midst of our tears, has God met us and brought us through, in a sense, on dry ground to a new beginning or to a new start? Uh, Wherever you're at on your journey today, I want you to hear these words that Jesus said to his disciples that night at the table from John chapter 16, verses 22 and 33. He said to them, and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice. And your joy no man taketh from you. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Hear that. We're going to have tribulation. We're going to have trials. There will be tragedies. There will be tears. But hear this. Be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. Baruchata Adonai, Eloheinu Melacholam, Borei Priha Adama. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruits of the earth. Take and eat. Feel free to uh, use your sacred uh, Seder juice uh, pouch and, and sip some of that down so you can wash your parsley down. Totally fine. Um, now, after we've taken of uh, the uh, carpus and, and the salt water, we're, we're encouraged to remember one more thing that the carpus represents. The carpus, the parsley, represents the hyssop that was used to apply the blood of that first Passover lamb to the doorposts and to the lintel of the door, as God had commanded them to do. God instructed them to take a one-year-old male unblemished lamb. You can see a picture of a sweet, precious little lamb up on the screen. Uh, and then to bring it into their home and to live with it for four days. And then on that last night, the, 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 actually the fifth night, uh, they were to kill it and then put its blood up on the front door. And then God said he'd pass over. That's where we get the name Passover. And if he saw the blood, he would then spare the life of their firstborn sons. If he didn't see the blood, then their firstborn sons would perish. Uh, and this was that tenth and final straw that finally broke Pharaoh's back to where he said, that's it, enough is enough, you go be with your God. Now, he would renege on that commitment, uh, but God would still end up getting a major victory at the Red Sea. Now, I want you to try to imagine just a little bit what this must have been like for the Israelites some 3,500 years ago uh, to bring a, a sweet, precious little lamb into their home uh, and to live with it for a few days before having to kill it. I can imagine what this would probably be like uh, in my home with my wife, Judy. Uh, Judy would probably be like, 
Okay, Justin. Uh, there's plenty of, re, uh, of instructions that you've received uh, throughout your life that I don't, I don't think you've heard quite right. Are you sure this is what God wants us to do? Because let me tell you something. Um, when we kill the, our kids' new pet, Fleecy, <laughs> um, that's not going to go over really well f- uh, with them. And it's probably going to have to send them to go see a counselor later in life. Uh, are you sure this is what God wants us to do? And Justin, let me also tell you, uh, our neighbors... Uh, already think we're a little different. Uh, as soon as they see us put blood up on the front door, they're probably going to call 911 and things are going to get really complicated around here. Are you sure this is what God wants us to do? Well, you know the story, right? And you know that the Israelites faithfully followed through with this command. And as a result of their faithfulness, uh, not only were the lives of their firstborn sons saved, uh, but it was that straw that broke Pharaoh's back to where he said, that's it, you go. And, and there's so many really great lessons in this for us. Of course, we can see the picture, right, that God is painting of an innocent life that, that's giving up its life so that life can be spared. But there's also a really important lesson in this for us. You know, sometimes God does give us instructions that can be uncomfortable, that may not make sense to neighbors or or even family members. But scripture makes it very, very clear, friends, that we're not to lean upon our own understanding, but we're to acknowledge God in all of our ways, and he will make our path straight, just as he made the path straight for the Israelites across the Red Sea. So friends, may you consider just in your life, what are the instructions that God has given you to follow? Are you taking what he has, has revealed through his word seriously? Are you walking in his ways? Though none go with us, friends, still, still, we must follow. Amen? Well, after we've done the carpus and the salt water, we then come to what's called the yachutz, the breaking of the middle matzah. Uh, up here on the table, uh, I have what's called a tosh. This is a pouch that has three sections in it. In each section, we place a piece of matzah, a piece of unleavened bread. What we do with the middle one of the three is we break it in half. We remove one half, and we wrap this into a white linen napkin. And it's a to-be-continued part that we'll get to in just a few moments. Um, Now, just so you know, in Jewish tradition, they don't know exactly where this originated or what the three matzah in the pouch are to represent. One of the popular uh, understandings for the three matzah in the one pouch is that it represents uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I even heard one rabbi say once that it can represent the three major denominational branches in Judaism, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Now, for me, as a follower of Jesus, I like to look at the three matzah in the one pouch to represent the tri-unity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think in a few moments you'll agree with me that that's a really good meaning for these three matzah. Now, uh, after we've done the breaking of the middle matzah and we've wrapped it into uh, a white linen napkin, which is now called the afikomen, uh, we then come to uh, another important part of the Seder, which is the second cup, known as the cup of judgment, also known as the cup of plagues or the cup of deliverance. Uh, 
It's uh, tied to God's promise that he would free them from their bondage. Who's there? Well, that would be the Egyptians. Now, what we do with the second cup normally is we would refill it because a full cup represents joy. But what we do with this cup is we diminish it of some of its joy in remembrance of the 10 plagues that God cast upon the Egyptians for the sake of our deliverance. Uh, The way that we would do this is we would take our Passover pinkies that we brought with us and uh, the leader of the Seder would read the plagues. And as each name of the plague is mentioned, we would then dip in with our, our little Passover pinky and then put it on a plate uh, in front of us. Now, we can't really do that uh, with your uh, juice uh, pouches. Uh, so you could just kind of imagine that you've just taken 10 drops out. Or if you really want to get creative, uh, maybe squeeze it 10 times and squirt it on the person next to you. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I always like to connect. Don't do that, please. (laughs) I always like to connect these things, of course, to the teachings of Jesus. Um, Of course, we should understand that, you know, he would never want us to rejoice at the sufferings and tragedies of our enemies. uh, Because, of course, he taught us that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Well, after we've done the second cup, uh, we then come to what's known as Dainu. Dainu. Uh, this is a song that we sing. There's actually 20 verses uh, to the song. Uh, I thought I would uh, sing 19 of them for you right now. No, you don't want to hear me sing that long. Uh, what a lot of uh, families will do instead of singing the whole song is the leader will just read the verse uh, and the family will just respond back by saying Dainu, which means we would have been satisfied or it would have been enough. And then they'll end the, that time with singing the chorus. So let's just do a few of the verses uh, together and, and then we can sing the chorus. And, and I'll teach you the chorus. It's very, very simple. So uh, let's do this. If he had merely rescued us from Egypt, but had not punished the Egyptians. Very good. If he had merely punished the Egyptians, but had not destroyed their gods. If he had merely destroyed their gods, but had not slain their firstborn. If he had merely slain their firstborn, but had not given us their property. And trust me, it continues. And then we end with this. Die, die, anew. Die, die, anew. Die, die, anew. Die, anew. Die, anew. Die, die, anew. Die, die, anew. Die, die, anew. Die, anew. Die, anew. Hey! You're really getting your Jewish on today. I really like that. It sounds great. Um, Now, this has been put into the Seder by the rabbis to remind us that if God had at any moment stopped providing uh, for for us, that we would have said, Dainu, we would have been satisfied. It would have been enough. Thank you for what you've done for us. Now, of course, this is revisionist history. This is not exactly what the Israelites did. They did the opposite. They complained. They, They murmured. Uh, Now, before you get too hard on them for acting that way, be honest with yourself. Have you ever acted that way? Has God ever shown up and provided for you? And then almost in the next breath, you're like, okay, God, what have you done for me lately? Now, friends, I think this should be a real challenge, a real uh, encouragement to us to consider that as followers of Jesus, if, if God were to never give us another thing for the rest of our lives, but freedom from the slavery of sin, if all we received for the rest of our lives was forgiveness and the promise of eternity with him, if that's all we ever received, my hope and my prayer 
is that the world would hear us say a very hearty Dianu. It would have been enough. But he's given us so much more than that, hasn't he? Think of what God has blessed you with. And most importantly, understand that God has blessed you with himself. His presence. Not just with you, but for any believer in you. So may we be known as a Dainu people. Amen? Well, after we've sung Dainu, uh, we then come to what's known as the Pesach. Uh, Pesach is the Hebrew word for Passover. And at this point of a Seder, we recognize another symbol that would be on the Seder plate. Now, it's not in your boxes, uh, but it is up here on the table. It is a lamb shank bone. Uh, This is from a lamb that I sacrificed last year at Passover. I'm just making sure you're all still listening. (laughs) I did not sacrifice a lamb at Passover last year. When uh, the uh, temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the rabbis forbid the sacrifice of lambs. In fact, uh, Ashkenazi Jews, Jews who descend from Europe, won't even eat of lamb at Passover because the thinking is if you can't sacrifice it, then you can't do the next instruction, which was to roast it and eat it. Uh, So they'll just put a lamb shank bone on the plate in remembrance of that lamb that had once been sacrificed when the temple stood. Now, for me as a follower of Jesus, I like to look at the lamb shank bone that sits on the Seder plate in remembrance of another lamb. And that's the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And to help us to engage even more so uh, with the significance of the sacrifice that that lamb made for us. I think it helps us to come to the next element that's a part of the Passover Seder. In your box, uh, you have uh, some matzah. If you would go ahead and unwrap that, the, the unleavened bread. Uh, this is a full piece uh, right here, how they normally come uh, in a box. Um, and there's a lot of symbolism here that's a part of this bread. First and foremost, what you need to know is that this bread was known as the bread of affliction. That's what God told the people of Israel to call the bread that they ate at the Passover so that they would remember how they had been afflicted when they were slaves in Egypt. Now, Jesus uh, takes the bread at the table that night, and he says of this bread, this, this is my body given for you. And then when you eat of it, I want you to eat it in remembrance of me. Now, what's so significant about Jesus taking the bread of affliction and ascribing it to himself is not just the fact that he would be afflicted on our behalf, but it's the fact that he's the only one who's qualified to take bread like this and ascribe it to himself for one reason and one reason only. And that's because there's no leaven in it, right, friends? which makes it a symbol of something that's holy, something that's without sin. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that although Jesus had been tempted, he never sinned. And this is how he was able to be that perfect substitute for the atonement of our sin. 
to help us to engage even more so with this story of the Exodus, with the story of our redemption and, and how he uh, brings us from, from slavery into uh, the hope of, of freedom. Uh, we then come to another element that's a part of the Passover Seder that God commanded uh, that we eat at the Passover. Uh, in your box, you'll notice there's another cup in there uh, that has uh, a whitish uh, mixture. It's, it's called uh, maror. Um, I don't know why we call it maror because most people don't want maror of it after they eat it. You see, it's prepared horseradish. God commanded that we are to eat of bitter herbs at the Passover. So I need you to get one bite-sized piece of your matzah and I need you to dip it into that cup of maror and make sure that when you come out of that little cup that you can actually see the bitter herbs that are on it. No microscopic pieces of maror are allowed. Um, we don't know why God said to eat bitter herbs, but the rabbis do believe that it's because uh, he wanted us to remember the bitterness of slavery and how the bitterness of slavery brought tears to our eyes. So let's take this together in remembrance of the bitterness of slavery. Mm. Pretty bitter. Although I see some of you that seem to be enjoying that a little bit too much. (laughs) Now, I've got good news for you. God doesn't want us to stay in the bitterness of slavery, does he? This is why the rabbis have added another element that comes right after. I'm feeling that in my throat right now. Um, It comes right after Uh, the bitter herbs. (coughs) Excuse me. I need you and I need me to get two bite-sized pieces of your matzah, of your unleavened bread. And I need you to then take one of them and dip it into that nice little apple mixture that's been provided for you. Kind of be careful with it. It might drip a little bit. There's, There's, of course, there's a napkin in your box if you need to use it. Now you're gonna take the second piece, and you're going to place that right on top, and that's to represent the making of a brick. The cheroseth, this apple mixture, represents mortar, and this then represents the making of bricks that the Israelites would have done when they were slaves uh, in Egypt. Now, of course, it's going to be very sweet to the taste when we eat it together uh, to remind us of the sweetness of our deliverance. And I love connecting this with what Jesus taught earlier in his ministry, ministry from John chapter eight, verse, starting at verse 34. Listen to what uh, Jesus said. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin and the ser- servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Take and eat in remembrance of the sweetness of your deliverance. Mm. Much better, right? (laughs) Than those bitter herbs. Uh, Feel free if you want to eat all of uh, what you have in there, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, Now, at this point in a Seder, we would normally put it on pause and we would have our large feast 
uh, together as a family. Normally this would be beef brisket and roasted chicken, matzo ball soup, uh, of course, and, and some other very traditional foods that we enjoy eating uh, at the Passover. But it's very important for us that we get to what happens after the meal, the, the Seder that continues. And during the mealtime, what will happen is the leader of the Seder will take the afikom, and you remember that middle matzah that was broken and wrapped into this white linen napkin. He'll take the afikom and he'll hide it somewhere in the home. And then after everything has been eaten from the meal, he'll then send the children to go find the afikomen. And the child that finds it and brings it back to him will receive a reward. And it's always a monetary reward. Now, you need to know something about me. This was my favorite part of Passover night when I was a kid. I would knock over cousins if I had to, to get to the afikomen first with no apologies. (laughs) Because I love finding it. And I loved bringing it back to my grandfather. And I love that look in his eye of, way to go, you found it. But what I really liked is when he reached into his pocket and he gave me a dollar. Now, that was a lot for me uh, back in the 70s. Uh, but uh, it's a bit more today that we give the winner. In fact, uh, due to inflation, I think this year, it's going to be even higher than it was last year. Uh, but uh, it's really just it's a fun time uh, to... Uh, participate in this. And, and I, I remember what my grandfather would then do with, with the afikomen, as he was supposed to. He, he took it, he crushed it, he would break it, and then he would give a piece of the bread to each and every one of us. And I remember distinctively one year, my grandfather handed it to me, and he said, remember the lamb. And, and then he went to others, and he said, remember the lamb. And so that's what I did for about five seconds. And then I moved on to something else. But let me tell you something for me now in my life. When I partake of the afikomen today, I don't just reflect on it for a few seconds and then move on. This is something that I reflect on on a routine basis because of the significance of what it represents for me. You see, I remember that it was Jesus, just like the matzah from the matzotosh, was revealed. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Who was born in Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And he said of himself, I am the bread of life. Whoever eateth of my flesh, though he dies, he will live. Jesus who, like this bread, was pierced and striped and bruised and crushed for my transgressions and iniquities upon that cross at Calvary. After he had breathed his last breath, they took him off the cross and he was wrapped into white linen. And then he was hid away into a tomb, but only for a short period of time because on the third day he arose and he came back for you and for me. And God's word makes it very clear that whoever finds him will not perish, but receive the reward of everlasting life. 
Friends, my hope and my prayer for you today that as you partake of a piece of the matzah, of the bread, that it will be in remembrance of the lamb, the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Grab a bite-sized piece of your bread and hang on to that. Let me say the blessing over it. And we'll eat this together. Baruchatah Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, lechem min haaretz. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the bread from the earth. Take and eat and remember the Lamb. After we've eaten of the afikomen, we are then instructed to partake of the third cup of the Passover meal. It's the Hagulah, the cup of redemption, and it's tied to a promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Well, Jesus, we read in Luke's gospel, he takes the cup after the meal. And, and he says of this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, Jesus knew full well that it would be with his outstretched arms upon that cross at Calvary, that he would pour out his blood upon the doorposts and the lintel of the cross, and that whoever by faith applies his blood, let's say, to the doorpost and to the lintel of our hearts, God will come over us and he'll say, oh yeah, that's my son. That's my daughter. And they believed in me. They believed in my son. And there's nothing you could ever do that will separate you from my love. And so friends today, my hope and prayer is that as you partake of the third cup, that you will remember the innocent blood of the lamb that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. May you take and drink and remember. And friends, when people embrace the reality of what all of this represents, I think it really does help us to appreciate what this chair at the table is all about. At Passover, Jewish people believe that the prophet Elijah will come to take his seat at the table to declare that the Messiah has arrived. The tradition is to go to the front door of your home and to open up the door to welcome the prophet Elijah if he so chooses to show up that year. And I saw my grandfather do this every year. He'd go out, he'd open up the door, and he'd come back in, and he'd say, maybe next year. Since our family were, were, Cub, we were Cub fans, uh, we always needed to get clarification as to whether or not uh, he was speaking about Elijah or he was speaking about the Cubs. Fortunately, we got that fixed in 2016. <laughs> but friends, Jesus said of his cousin John that he came in the spirit of Elijah, that he was the forerunner who announced that the Messiah had come. 
And so when I look at this seat at the Passover table, it reminds me of the Elijah in my life who helped me understand that the Messiah had come. His name was Josh Wiggins, an African-American man who met my mother on a city train in Chicago when I was just five years old. My mother was going through a very difficult season in, in her life at that time, and she was taking the train to work Monday through Friday into the city from Skokie. And when you go to work at the same time, you will often see the same people. Well, Josh Wiggins was one of those people. And Josh was a follower of Jesus, and he had a prompting one morning that essentially went like this. Josh, that Jewish woman who you see deeply matters to me, and you have never looked into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to me. And I want you to do what you've been called to do in this world, and that's be my hands and be my feet, be a vessel of truth and grace and mercy and compassion in this woman's life. And so Josh, being obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to the nudge of God upon his heart, he got up out of his seat on that train, and he stepped way outside of his comfort zone, and he walked up to my mother with an extended hand, and he said, I know this is going to sound really strange, but it just seems to me that you could use a friend. And my mother was like, whoa, that, that is pretty strange. But she said, you know what? I've been going through a really tough season, and I could use all the encouragement I can get. He said, I know I can see it in your face. Tell me your story. And she shared her story with Josh. And over the next several months, Josh started to unfold God's redemptive story in his own life about how a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth had radically impacted and transformed his life. And he believed that this rabbi could do the same for hers. Now, if you're a little fuzzy about which rabbi he was talking about, I'm not sure where you've been today. (laughs) But of course, he was talking about Jesus. And my mother got acquainted with Jesus. But she did more than just get acquainted. She fell in love with Jesus. And she came to understand that there is none other but Jesus, who is not only the promised Messiah, the promised Redeemer of her life, but the promised Messiah for the whole world. And that whoever by faith applies his blood to their hearts, whoever surrenders their life to him, will be saved. And friends, when that happens in people's lives, I think you can kind of see how in in many ways it's as if someone is taking their seat at the table. And, And I want you to just consider how does God want to use you to be an Elijah, to be a Josh Wiggins, to help others understand that the Messiah has come to put out the invitation to come to take their seat at his table. Friends, in just a week will be Easter. What can you do over these next few days to put out some invitations to those in your life, neighbors, family members, coworkers? Friends, invite them to come to hear about their Messiah. And friends, when people take their seat at the table, I really think it enhances so much of what the last symbol on the Seder plate is. You don't have it in your box. I have it up here. Uh, It's a hard-boiled egg. 
Jewish people will take uh, an egg and uh, hard boil it and then roast it or get a flame, use a flame before Passover to get a burnt mark on it because it is to represent the burnt offerings that were made at the temple when the temple once stood. It sits on the plate with the hope that one day the temple will be rebirthed. It'll be rebuilt so that the sacrificial system can begin again. But let me tell you something as a follower of Jesus. When I see the egg on the table, I'm not looking so much to the temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. I'm more focused on the temple that is being rebuilt right now. And it's not built out of bricks and mortar and stone. It's built out of hearts and souls, people like you and people like me. You see, the chief cornerstone of that temple is Jesus. And we are a part of his temple that he's building through the power of his spirit. You see, we have a once and for all sacrifice, and that's Jesus. And friends, the rabbis of old, they said that if you wanted to gaze upon something beautiful in this world, that you needed to gaze upon the temple that stood in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, and I'm sure it was magnificent. But let me tell you, I believe that the temple that God is building today, it's far more beautiful than the temple that stood some 2,000 years ago because God's temple today is red and yellow and black and white. And it is precious, precious in his sight. And if you won't take my word for it, then I pray to God that you'll take the apostle Peter's word for it. I just absolutely love what he wrote uh, in his first epistle. And as I read this, I I want to invite the worship team to come back up to uh, lead us in worship in just a few moments. But listen here to what Peter writes. First Peter chapter two, verses three through six. Just love this. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Yeshua the Messiah, by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Hear this. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Do you hear that? He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And so I need to ask you, friends, today, have you believed in him? Have you put your trust in the one who took the bread of affliction and was afflicted for you? Have you put your trust in the light of the world? Have you put your trust in the Lamb of God? Have you put your trust in the one who took the cup of redemption and he did not let it pass from him? If that's you, then you have a really good reason today to stand and to take part of the fourth cup, the cup of praise. If you would stand with me as we partake of this cup together, remembering that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Friends, just as it was completely and entirely impossible 
for the Israelites to save themselves from the bondage of physical slavery. So too, hear this, so too is it completely and entirely impossible for you to save yourself from the bondage of the slavery of sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam, Pri Hagafen, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. And may you take, and may you drink, and may you never, ever forget God's amazing, amazing grace.